Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. show for you this evening. My guest in studio is Robert Lyman, more affectionately known as Bob, <laughs> from <laughs> Facebook. I have gently twisted his arm um, and convinced him that coming into the studio and sitting and joining us this evening would be a great idea because he has a wealth of knowledge to share with us about a whole host of topics, most of it environmental and economic, and it's a pleasure to, uh, to welcome you to the Nick and Knight Studios. Well, it's very kind of you to invite me, Nick. Well, before you do that, you're going to have to pick that up. <laughs> Sorry. This is obviously a novice here. That's quite uh, all right. We make room for novices. It's very kind of you to invite me, Nick. I've uh, I've listened to your show in the past, and I've enjoyed the, the uh, exchanges that I've seen on Facebook with you. So. Well, believe me, there have been a ton of those. And it's always amazing to me. I was just telling you this off air, but I'll share it with the listeners. That uh, Oh, by the way, if you want to give us a phone call, I should finish my logistics first. Uh, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. For those of you listening online, that works for you Facebook crowd too, by the way. Uh, give us a shout if you have any questions for Bob. Now's a golden opportunity. We've got him for an hour, so don't waste it. Um, anyway, so I'll keep an eye on the on the call board. But uh, to get back to this, when we have uh, your postings on Facebook, I'm always amazed at the kind of flow of conversation that comes from that, stems from that, because your your pieces are so well thought out. And I I, I hope this is not coming across as patronizing. I'm just trying to be honest. That um, when I when I read, there's so much. Let me let me change. Let me just put it this way. There's so much junk out there on the internet. And in the news and the mainstream media, that when you read something as well-researched and well-thought-out, it's a breath of fresh air. And that's what you bring to the table. So with that said, let's jump right in here. I wanted, I wanted to um, uh, bring, bring up a couple of things. First of all, you've, have you heard about the uh, latest survey out of Seattle, Seattle about uh, what's happened since they've raised the minimum wage to, uh, I think they, they raised it to 13 but it's equivalent to about $15 Canadian. Are you familiar with that? Study. I had I had seen a report that uh, there was a reduction in the number of, of uh, employees as a result. In fact, that's exactly what uh, the economic studies in the past would have shown. Um, there, the there's a tremendous appeal to the idea of minimum wages because, of course, everyone 
uh, feels that uh, people are entitled to uh, a, live, a living wage. And uh, you, you don't like the thought that people are going to have to struggle to get by. Um, the, uh, the problem is that if that there are a number of employers, particularly in small business, that can only afford to, to hire some people uh, at uh, a relatively low wage because they tend to be jobs that are relatively unskilled and, and uh, ones where uh, there's a lot of other people that are quite willing to do the job at that, that level. So what happens is that when you raise the minimum wage beyond what the employer can afford to pay, then the employer simply uh, cuts the job. And uh, that's what I think is happening in Seattle. So what we're finding out is there's so, only so much money in the envelope for employees and that the more expensive you make the individual employee, the less money there is in the envelope to hire new ones. Well, that's right. You know, the, a lot of people um, kind of approach these things as though it's a matter of, of, um, of rights. It's, uh, I, I'm a, an economist by background, and so I see it really in terms of supply and demand, uh, not, not rights. Uh, a company uh, has to be able to sell its products uh, at a profit and uh, do so in a way that stays in business. So they, uh, the, the salaries that they pay uh, come out of uh, the, uh, the revenues that they receive. If the revenues are not enough uh, for them to be able to stay in business, then they, they can't, can no longer continue. And so that's, that's essentially their main consideration. What can we do that will allow us to stay in business grow uh, and compete with others over time all right so because this has been for me now look i like things in simple terms and it's if you go to the fast food restaurant analogy or to the coffee shop analogy and you're going to pay somebody 15 dollars an hour to pour coffee how much profit is there in a pot of coffee and how many pots can an individual pour in an hour in order to, to not only cover their wages, but cover all the other working expenses as well. Because profit is not a dirty word. It's what keeps businesses afloat. And what too many people don't realize, or at least that's what I've come to understand, is that they think profit means it goes straight into the owner's pocket, never to be seen again, or squandered in ways, you know, on everybody but the employees. And they don't seem to understand. They don't have a, a, the understanding of um what that word actually represents, and if there was, you can't. If you run at, on, if all you ever did was cover your cost, you're treading water, and nobody can do that forever. Is that a fair analysis? Yes, it is. Um, some time ago, I uh, put a note onto Facebook which talked about what are profits and whether they're good or bad things. Um, and as you say. Uh, a profit per se is neither good or bad. It's simply uh, the difference between the revenues that uh, a business takes in from the sale of its products and the costs that it incurs in staying in business. Um, but if you, if you stop and think about it, what is it that, an, that a business does when it makes a profit? Uh, the first thing that it has to do is that it has to consider whether or not it's going to reinvest those profits in growing the business. In other words, in establishing some new lines of inventory, some new products, uh, to carry out some research that will allow it to have a broader range of services. 
uh, and broadly do things that will make the business grow over time. Will it do that? That's one option. The other option is that it can um, per, uh, use those funds to pay a dividend to the shareholders. Uh, why pay a dividend to the shareholders? Well, because that's the incentive that a shareholder has to reinvest more in the business over time. Uh, and, and if a company loses its attraction for investors, then often it loses its access to the funds that it also needs to grow. Um, or, or it can use those funds to increase spending on different costs in the company. It can use the funds to increase the salaries for the management, increase the salaries for the employees, and so on. Those are the kind of choices that they make. And it's uh, whether they make wise choices about how to use that profit that will determine whether they stay in business at all and whether they thrive. So in a, in a simple analogy might be that um, – let me put it to you this way. Being a very agrarian-centered kind of a guy, profits are to a business what water and nutrients are to a plant. That's not a bad analogy. Oh, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> it's the best one I could come up with on short notice because let's face it. Without water and nutrients, the plant can only last so long. I mean, it'll soon absorb whatever there is in the soil it got started in, and then that's it. You have to uh, provide uh, the medium for growth. And in this case, going back to business now, uh, that medium, that fertilizer, is in fact the profits that come from the transactions that we have every day between merchant and, and customer. I even had to explain to a young man on, on Facebook, not on Facebook, on actually on YouTube, it was a long string conversation that broke out there, uh, and you know me, I can't keep my mouth shut, so... Just to break it down into how what where where wealth is created, and that's that transaction between uh, the merchant and and the customer uh, for a product or service they both can live with, and the difference between the merchant's cost and the, what the merchant sold it for is the is the wealth of the country. That's the economy in a nutshell. So it was it was unfortunate I had to get down to that level to explain it to him. And I'm no rocket scientist economist either. If you take one look at my bank account, you figure that out in a hurry. <laughs> but at least understanding, having a rudimentary understanding of how the economy works I think is absolutely vital. Now, one of the things I wanted, I was kind of hoping we could talk about, um, because this whole minimum wage thing sets an artificial floor. Rather, let me, let, me put, let me ask you this. From an economist's point of view, because whether we like it or not, government is involved, in, especially in economics, in every facet of life. So rather than artificially setting a price for labor, which is what they do when they set a minimum wage, what could the government do to, to increase the creation of job growth and in a way that, that allows the expansion of business and more opportunities for especially people? Like I've got a 16-year-old son who just got his first job. He, he went to work today for the first day, first day on the job in a little, in a little grocery store in Barry's Bay. Um, no experience, you know, he's going to get student minimum wage, whatever it is. So what would be the, other than setting an artificial floor, how could government go about attracting or making it attractive for businesses to hire people like my 16-year-old son? Well, that's a tough question. Um, generally, I think that, um, let me start what I think is a fairly obvious and accepted uh, uh, generalization most of the job creation in the economy is done by small business. Mm -hmm. It's not done by really large companies. Uh, and, and most of the uh, new jobs that have been created in Canada over the last 
15 years or so, unfortunately, have tended to be part-time jobs rather than full-time jobs. Why part-time? Well, because if they're part-time, then the employer doesn't have to pay social benefits of one sort or another, doesn't have to pay unemployment insurance, doesn't have to pay pensions, etc. So one of the things that governments can do is to broadly reduce the costs that businesses, and particularly small businesses, incur because of government itself. Um, And and, uh, the single most important thing that's important to, to them is the rate of taxation, the corporate income tax rate the small businesses uh, have. Um, that, of course, is a major controversy in Canada, the United States, and elsewhere, uh, what one should do with a corporate income tax rate. Uh, there are some economists who, are, who argue that you should eliminate the corporate income tax altogether. That and just, just collect uh, income from your personal income taxes or from uh, sales taxes or other indirect taxes and so on. Uh, the reasoning being that if you completely eliminated corporate income taxes, you'd provide a much stronger incentive for companies to reinvest and to and to create more jobs. Or come here in the first place. Exactly. Uh, and the other reality that small businesses and large businesses face, whether they're talking about uh, additional investments or uh, hiring more people, is that they they live in a very, very competitive market both competitively within Canada and uh, in in terms of competition with goods that come from outside. So, once again, if you have lower government-imposed costs, then you're able to compete better both within the country and with uh, the companies that you compete with outside. All right, because I'm one of those who would say scrap corporate income tax altogether, but in corporate welfare too, because you can't have it both ways. And I don't like corporate welfare for the same reason I don't like welfare in general um, if it becomes a crutch. Like I'm not against – you know that's the old saying uh, um – social safety nets should be uh, on on ramp back onto the highway, not a dead end street. And I think that's true of companies too. Um, I I don't believe – if a company can manage on its own, then great. If it can't, then somebody else will come along and take its place. Bombardier is a classic example of the extreme in corporate welfare. So I would say get rid of that altogether and just stop that. But at the same time, the other side of the coin would be to eliminate the corporate tax for all the reasons that you were just mentioning. Now, I, again, I'm no economist. I'm just a, a guy that's barely able to balance a checkbook. But it it's all seems to me just pretty straightforward common sense. Well, of course, Maxime Bernier, the uh, fellow who tried to become the leader of the Conservative Party, <laughs> in, in fact, was, uh, was recommending that uh, – we end corporate welfare, uh, and uh, he was considered by much of the media to be uh, extremely right-wing for taking that position. Um, I would say that um, generally uh, you would get a lot of agreement among most Canadians that corporate welfare uh, of the sort that you see with a massive government subsidies for Bombardier um, is not a good thing, that, it, that it's, it's costly to the, to the general taxpayer, um, and it doesn't necessarily result in the increased investment or increased employment that, that governments want it to achieve in the first place. Um, and almost every political party will agree with that when they're out of office. <laughs> Once they're in office, whether it's the conservatives or, or liberals uh, federally, uh, they have continued to do the same thing again and again. To be completely candid, part of the reason for that is 
because of the location of Bombardier's uh, holdings. So where are their companies? Where is their employment? It's in the province of Quebec. And the province of Quebec has always been a, a, a key strategic area for any government or any party that wants to be able to form the national government in Canada. Have, people have to be very sensitive about how they treat companies there. Uh, sorry. No, no, that's, that's fine. Uh, we do have to take our first break. I hope that you'll... <coughs> Give us a call at 343-700-4390. My guest is Robert Lyman. We'll be right back after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your IC specialist 613-835-2600 all right welcome back to the naked night show folks Three four three seven zero zero forty three ninety. If you've got some questions for Bob, I certainly encourage you to call. Um, let's get into what your forte is: the environment and um, transportation and economics and those kinds of things. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to think of an intelligent. Well, let me, let's let's start with the lay of the land. How do you see that kind of uh, uh, situation as as it? as we see it today in Canada like what how well are we doing when we try to balance that equation if that makes any sense at all it does um, because uh, the, the topic to, of in the environment and, and the economy tends to be so all pervasive not a bad idea to start off thinking about what the overview is uh, maybe I should say a little bit about my own background Nick, sure. as to why it is that I, I have some expertise to talk on this subject um, I worked in the Canadian federal government for uh, over 30 years uh, as a foreign service officer and, uh, and then uh, as an economist working in a number of different federal government departments. Uh, for the last 20 years of my career, I worked primarily in the areas of energy, transportation, and the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I was doing policy studies and managing people that are doing policy studies uh, in those areas. Uh, since I retired, I have continued as a part-time consultant to do some uh, policy research in those areas uh, as well. And, uh, of course, I often write for um, different online uh, sources. Um, my view generally is that environmental quality in Canada is excellent. Um, if you look at air quality, water quality, um, and at the, the, uh, the broad indices of, of environmental quality in Canada – uh, and compare it to the way things were when you and I were growing up, it's significantly better in almost every respect. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, it, 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 with respect to the, the automobile, which often uh, is uh, looked to as, as a source of pollutants, uh, the average uh, 2015 uh, model vehicle emits less than 1% of the pollution that a 1975 model did. Uh, and uh, if you were to look at the, quali- at the contents of the fuel, of gasoline mm-hmm. or diesel fuel, uh, that has significantly less of the pollutants, particularly sulfur and lead uh, and some other uh, pollutants, than uh, vehicle fuels had even 15 years ago. Uh, and so and the, the one area where we could, certainly could continue to, to improve is in terms of water pollution. Far too many Canadian cities uh, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and to some extent on the St. Lawrence Valley continue to to dump untreated pollution uh, into the waterways. Well, I remember Um, when I was a kid back in the 70s. God, that seems like a lifetime ago. uh, I went fishing with my uncle, who was an avid fisherman out on Lake St. Clair. mm -hmm. And we were trolling, and I have no idea what we were trolling for, but I can tell you what we caught. Carp and suckers. Or carp, suckers, and sheephead. That was it. Today, the Great Lakes are some of the is as a wildly successful uh, has a has a commercial fishery in it, a wildly successful sport fishery in it, and it is nothing like the lakes of the 1970s. So, just to underline your point about how much healthier. Now, to be fair, that was not our. As a matter of fact, we thought it was a problem when it came along. That was a zebra mussel that cleaned up that that body that water body because they filtered all the water. As a matter of fact, they got so they were so good at it that they had weed growth where they didn't used to before, and that caused its own problems. But there are a lot of things that have improved remarkably in the last thirty years. Some of it we can take credit for, some of it we can't. But well, thirty years ago, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement between Canada and the United States really set the tone and, and uh, led to significant efforts at both the federal, state, and provincial levels of government to. Um, pass new regulations and to implement new uh, water quality programs that would reduce all for all kinds of pollutants. Uh, and, and so that's had, had a tremendous effect. As I, as I say, we're, we're not there yet. I mean, there, many of the ports on the East Coast and on the West Coast continue to dump untreated yeah, water. Yeah, that's right a problem. The There's no doubt of that. The number one controversy, of course, is about climate change and, and particularly about the theory that uh, humans are causing uh, catastrophic uh, global warming. Um, there, there is a tremendous debate over the science of that. Uh, with one side arguing that the, you know, the, the, there's a consensus and the debate is settled, and and the other side saying no, you know, as a result of the measurements of actual temperatures or looking at the alleged uh, crises that uh, were predicted. There, you, you, it's not settled. There still is a, a significant uh, question outstanding there. And, the, and then there's another controversy with respect to uh, how you can project what will happen in future. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the body of the United Nations, mm-hmm. has uh, used um, you know, advanced modeling techniques to try to project what will happen a century from now. Uh, and they've come up with their view of, of what the resulting effects on the climate will be and, and what the effects would be in terms of temperature changes. Uh, but there remains a debate about that. And some of the keenest debates concerns about what to do about that. Whether you agree or not, what to, should we do about it? What kinds of uh, measures should 
governments like that in Canada take uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Well, let me ask you about that then, because uh, you're right. Let's set the debate about whether or not it's real, because I don't think it is. I think the idea that man has that kind of godlike power to influence the single most complex system on the planet just because we're, we're burning gasoline, it doesn't make any sense to me. I think that's the height of arrogance. But whatever. Let's set that aside for a moment and talk about the economic impact. Let's assume that all the doomsayers are right, that the sky is falling and Chicken Little is running around and, mm-hmm. oh, my God, we're all going to, you know, we're going to fry in 20 years. What is the economic impact of taking the road that people like David Suzuki and Al Gore uh, and even Justin Trudeau from the Paris Accord want us to take where we dramatically reduce our carbon emissions to uh, levels that would just basically wipe out our economy. What's the cost to that? Like, how, do, how, do, how can they turn around and sell that to us? Well, about three weeks ago, um, I gave a speech before uh, the annual meeting of the Friends of Science Society, which is an uh, a, a organization based in Calgary that takes a, a skeptical approach to the global warming hypothesis. Uh, and in that speech, I tried to set out what would be the consequences of actually trying to achieve the emission reduction targets that have been set in Canada. Um, And remember that we started off in actually 1992 setting our first target, which was to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions at 1990 levels by the year 2000. We failed. Then in 1997 at the Kyoto conference, another target was set. That was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 5% from 1990 levels by 2010. Once again, countries failed. Um, And ever since then, uh, we have proceeded at the international level to set ever more stringent greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. Uh, The the ones that we are politically committed to now are to reduce Canada's emissions by 30% from 2005 levels by 2030 and to reduce our emissions by 50% or more by 2050. To try to explain what that means, you have to think about how do we, what, how do we use energy now and how is that reflected in terms of the, the emissions? About a, a quarter of our total emissions comes from oil and gas production. Another, uh, about 20%, or, oh, sorry, about 25% also comes from transportation. Okay. And then about 10% each comes from the sectors of electricity generation, uh, heavy industry, agriculture, uh, and buildings, with another residual 7% or so from from waste. Um, So let me take a very specific example. You mentioned gasoline. Mm -hmm. If you were to eliminate every single car... And every single SUV in Canada, that would reduce Canada's greenhouse gas emissions by 11.5%. That wouldn't even get us halfway to the 2030 target. So how do they propose to do this then? Well, it's all based upon the view that somehow we'll be able to develop new technologies and to apply the very best of existing technologies to reduce... Uh, the energy intensity of the economy, that is, improving energy efficiency. 
there's some basis for that in some areas. I mean, again, with respect to, to, to motor vehicles, the regulations that have been passed by Environment Canada aim to reduce uh, the fuel efficiency of vehicles by almost 40% by the mid-20s, the greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's a significant change. But the problem is things don't stand still. You may be improving the energy efficiency of the vehicles, but people are constantly buying more vehicles. And, and the net out of that is that uh, emissions from motor vehicles are either flat or very, very gently declining. Um, all of the emission goals that have been set, the targets, take no account of growth in population or the economy. So in, in other words, when, they, when we set these, these enormously uh, demanding goals, we're essentially assuming two things. One, that either the economy won't grow significantly or population grow, won't grow significantly, or that we'll be able to find new technologies that will significantly improve the energy intensity of the economy. Well, let's say that that's all true. If you are looking for new technology, something we don't already have access to, right? So presumably, we don't even know what they are yet. Well, in some cases, people have an, a, a vague idea. I mean, again, staying for the time being on the, on the, the motor vehicle issue, um, the uh, one of the hopes is that electric vehicles will make a, a, a breakthrough, uh, and they will become significantly more appealing to, to consumers and that the costs of the batteries will decline, and that the range of a vehicle will extend to the point where it's at least somewhat comparable to a gasoline or diesel-fuel-powered car. Um, frankly, except for the really expensive Teslas, we're not there yet. You know, the uh, Electric vehicles represent 1% of the motor vehicle new sales in Canada, 1.5% uh, in the U.S. After, after decades of massive subsidies. They're less than 1% of the global vehicle stock. Well, the part that I'm wondering about, the reason I brought that up was because assuming, okay, first of all, electric cars come with another problem, and that is it's fine to store energy in a battery and drive down the road, and it is the most efficient way of moving because it provides the most torque for the given unit of energy. I get that. But um, the electricity has to come from somewhere. Yes. And Ultimately, that is normally either nuclear, and we all know how popular that is, um, more and more from wind and solar, and we all know how efficient those are, and gas and oil-fired uh, fuel plants. So in other words, at some point, fossil fuels is still part of the equation, which is what they're trying to get rid of. So the harder they try, the worse they get, to put it in simple terms. Uh, you're, you're really kind of singing my song here, Nick. <laughs> I, I've, been trying to, I've been trying to make this case in, in many ways and in many places. I, I, let me give you a, a further example of what you just said um, about the, the oil that is embedded in the products that we use. Uh, if you take the average motor vehicle today, the oil that is embedded in the materials that compose a motor vehicle right. is more than the oil in the tank. It just blows my mind. Do you know something? And I'm, I'm so glad somebody with some authority, you know, some knowledge about this is saying this. Because if we were to stop using fossil fuels, we would be living in grass huts 
cooking over wood stoves, open fires, never mind wood stoves, because it would take fuel to make the wood stove. You cannot get rid of fossil fuels, certainly not overnight, not even in the next 40 or 50 years. We depend so heavily on it for a lot more than just pharmaceuticals. You run down the list. There's a great commercial put on by the oil industry. Maybe you've seen it. It's about the guy who, as he walks through his house, the things that are made or have something to do with the oil or fossil fuels that his home is filled with begin to disappear. Mm -hmm. And as he walks out the front door, you turn around and there's nothing left, not even the foundation, because it took diesel fuel to bring the concrete in the truck to get it there. There's, there's, we're so closely, it's very much like a dog saying, I'm going to pluck out all my hairs just because I don't like hairs. Never mind the fact I'd freeze to death. Oh, no, we can't have that. But it's just complete lack of common sense and understanding of how pervasive and totally entwined we are um, with the the oil industry. Now, I'm going to before you comment, I have to take a break, but I do want to continue with this thread because I, there, this is very important. All right, let me just uh, we'll do this. We'll be right back with my guest, Robert Lyman, right after this. Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Okay, welcome back to the Nick at Night Show, folks. Five, no, no, no. See, I almost did it again. 343-700-4390 is one number you can use. You can also use 844-562-4766 if you want to give us a call. For those of you out there in Facebook land and out there in uh, online land, um, by all means, give us a shout. There's plenty to talk about. And I think Robert and I are just getting warmed up because, <laughs> oh, man, we were talking before the break about how well worn how totally uh ensconced in our lifestyle in our modern way of living uh fossil fuels are now you want to talk about cop 21 yes what's in that first of all explain for those who don't know what cop 21 is 
Okay. Um, COP21 is the uh, conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Makes me shiver every time I hear that name from the UN. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Okay. Um, there have been 22 different conferences held so far. That's why I call that, it COP21. In, a, in a, attempts to um, achieve different levels of agreement on actions that countries might take. Uh, COP21 that was held in Paris in December of 2015 uh, sought to achieve agreement on um, the level of the targets at a global level that would that uh, countries would attempt to achieve in terms of emissions reduction and the targets that individual countries would commit to in terms of emissions reduction. Um, they also wanted to agree on what is the amount of money that the developed countries, and particularly the there's, there's, there's 24 what are called Annex II countries, mainly the richer countries of the OECD, mm -hmm. would, would be contributing in funds to the developing countries to help pay for their efforts to reduce emissions. Um, in the event, what happened was that COP21 was held, and they did reach a political agreement uh, that they would um, aim to reduce emissions globally to a level that would avoid uh, more than a two-degree increase in greenhouse gas emissions on the planet, but they didn't agree on what the, the emissions reduction target would be, and no country agreed what its individual emissions reduction target would be. Further, they didn't agree on what the penalties for noncompliance would be. So in, answer, in other words, they all agreed there's a problem, but they, nobody wanted to commit to fix it. They wouldn't co commit to what they individually would do. <laughs> what they did agree to do is we're going to submit a plan. Aha. <laughs> I, I, if I got a plan for you. Okay, so Does it involve swampland? Right. Not so. The, the plot, the, the, every, every five years, each country is committed to submit a plan indicating what it's going to do. Um, it do there's no indication of what it, what it has to include in that plan, but it must include a plan. So, and so th they took this as a wonderful political victory. Um, in reality, it was an enormous failure, but, but they presented it publicly as a victory. And the, and the media has generally accepted this as a victory because it was an indication that every five years, every country is going to be required to submit a plan to the United Nations Secretariat, and the UN Secretariat will evaluate it. And if it doesn't stand up to what the UN bureaucrats think it should hold, they will be severely criticized. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Reminds me about a movie, the fun, America One or something. First, America for um, what was it? Uh, it was one of those Muppet, uh, no, puppeteer kind of movies. You remember the old Thunderbird yes, series? Yes. Like that when they went after Kim Jong, Kim Jong, Jong which, and, they, and he said, "What and what will you do? We will write letters and tell you." Tell them how angry we are, annoyed with you, and then what? Then we will write more letters and tell them how angry we are. Well, people, it, oh, countries do take it fairly seriously because it, it, what it does is it mobilizes all of the local uh, environmental groups and, and it mobilizes the uh, international lobby groups to, to try to embarrass governments. And, and they don't like to be embarrassed in that way. But, but it, it is still a commitment to submit a plan, no more than that. But there's another part that, that is generally has not give, been given a lot of attention. And that is the contribution of funds to the developing countries. The commitment was uh -huh. that you have to provide funds that will be at least $100 billion a year by 2020. 
Right. That, now, these are to come from the 24 countries. Mm -hmm. But, once again, there is no indication of what each country's share is in, in terms of donations, and there's no indication of what each country's share will be in terms of the recipients. So they're all going to submit their five-year plans, and somewhere in there they'll say how much money they will have to contribute if they're an Annex two, or how much money they want if they're a receiving country. And then somehow, in some subsequent conference, that'll all get hashed out. You, if you believe that, as you say, uh, uh, well... <laughs> Swampland, yeah. Yeah, yeah Swampland in Florida. Just don't, whatever you do, don't tell Trudeau about the fact that nobody else is committed to this $100 because he'll commit us for the whole thing. Well, he already, one of his first acts after becoming prime minister was to commit Canada to contribute $2.65 billion. Uh, yeah. That I didn't know. I knew about the $250 million in Middle Eastern countries. No, to, uh, but I, I've, I've looked at this in some detail because it, it gets so little attention from the media. Um, Two point how much? $2.65 billion. That's what we're With already... With Yes. Oh, yes. That's what we're already con committed to contribute. The, if you take $100 billion, and $100 billion a year is the floor. As a, they are projected that by 2025, they will raise that You could limit. build a city for that kind of money. Oh, indeed you can. Uh, and, well, $100 billion a year for 10 years is a trillion dollars, which is, which is small potatoes. You could build a country for that money. Well, Maybe me, not a big one, but you could build one. But let, let me tell you further about it. The $100 billion is not, uh, the shares have not been allocated, but... The presumption uh, would be that it will be divided on the basis of each country's income or gross domestic product. The gross domestic product of the Annex two countries is $44 trillion annually. That's how much the countries make. And the United States actually uh, represents about 40% of that. Canada represents 3.6% of that. So if you're following me here, if it's $100 billion a year and the United States' share would have been 40%, that is $40, 40 billion, billion a year that the United States would have been required to contribute, which goes a long way to explain why Donald Trump decided to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. If you further follow me, $3.6 billion a year would be Canada's contribution. If we did that, that would virtually double our foreign aid that we give to other countries. Oh, man. So in th we're th this is, all of this will have to be worked out in terms of the further conferences and so on. But but you can see that the, tra the track that we're on. Okay, well, that's really inspiring. Um, one of the things I want to, uh, okay, because that will make, if that doesn't make your head explode, nothing will. Because he, he was, I'm going to get into this in an hour too, but, he was complaining about how everything is everybody else's fault. Electoral reform. Oh, those nasty senators, you know, they wouldn't go along. The obstructionist conservative senators, they were just evil people because they wouldn't go along. And one thing after another, he blamed on everybody else. He will not accept responsibility for himself. And now we're going to double our foreign aid and get absolutely nothing back for it. That's the part that I think most Canadians are going to find the most galling. It's one thing if the money goes to, I don't know, let's say... Darfur, because there's children dying of starvation every day over there, and nobody seems to care because they're in some backwater third-world country, right? So if we sent $2 billion over there and it made a real difference, people would be, feel pretty good about that. 
But there's none of that in this. Well, I, I haven't told you the really bad news. Oh, it gets, oh, <laughs> gets better. Oh, lovely. The, the really bad news is, uh, well, there's two parts. Uh, the, the first is that these funds are intended to go to the developing countries. Um, the developing countries include some of the richest countries of the world, including countries like China and India and South Korea and Brazil and Indonesia. These are countries that have that whose gross domestic products are already well over a trillion dollars a year, but yet they qualify to receive contributions. Further, uh, the developing countries, and especially the the least developed countries, the ones that generally tend to be led by India, have insisted that they will not be accountable for how they use the funds, because they regard this as compensation for the emissions that industrialized countries have, have made in the past. So not only are we throwing away $2.6 billion uh, to, con- to, to countries uh, who may or may, you know, the, the people we give it to are going to say, okay, thank you, now I'm going to go buy some new fighter jets. Not that a country doesn't have a right to that, but that's not what the money's for. Or we're going to spend it on a new governmental palace. In other words, they can do whatever they want with it. It has nothing to do with saving the planet and it's just basically a wealth transfer from one side of the planet to the other. That is precisely right. No, no, that's not how it will be presented publicly. Of course not. But when you get down to it, yes. that's what it boils down to. Yeah. You know, I sometimes I hate being right. <laughs> I really do. It's not. It doesn't happen all that often. But anyway, all right, we got to take a little break there. I want to get into Ontario uh, Hydro, and I know. Bob's chomping at the bit to get at that, too. There's just so much meat on the table, and we only got them for an hour, so let's take advantage of it. Okay, you guys listen to this. We'll be right back with more after that. Your Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete forms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. All right, just before we get back to this, don't take that away yet. Um, sorry, I'm yelling at Bob here, and I shouldn't. Um, he gave me a list he shouldn't have given me. And we were talking about um, uh, emissions again here during the break. 
And I'm just going to read you some numbers. The percentage, how much we would reduce our global global greenhouse gas emissions in a percentage if we eliminated every car and SUV, that would be 11.5%. If we eliminated every truck, 8.8%. We stopped producing natural gas, 7.7%. We shut down all mines and manufacturing, 10.4%. We stopped producing food, 10.1%. The four Atlantic provinces left. How did I miss that one? The four Atlantic provinces, which is three-quarters of the country at Confederation, by the way, uh, 5.8%. Which tells you how much of their uh, how much they actually contribute, which comes up to fifty five percent. Yep. So, in other words, we would have to wipe out our standard of living, and you said we'd have the energy intensity of what country? Sudan. If you if you did all of the things that are well, sorry, this will get you to fifty five percent. The province of Ontario and the province of Quebec are both committed to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by eighty percent or more. Uh, from 2005 levels by 2050. If you get down to 80%, then you're talking about an energy intensity equivalent to that of Sudan today. Oh, my God. Now, to be fair, not to be fair, but Quebec could do that because most of its energy comes from hydroelectric. Oh, but there lies the problem for Quebec. Uh, because what do you, Quebec has the, a problem? Imagine the, well, that. the starting point, Quebec... Uh, is already one of the least uh, greenhouse gas intensive economies. Oh, I see in where the world. you're going. So how do you reduce it further? So how do you reduce it further? If you look at at the uh, how, where they currently uh, produce emissions from, transportation and and um, large plants. Uh, if and in fact, transportation represents forty four percent of greenhouse gas emissions in Quebec. Um, they're going to really have to knock the heck out of their cars and their trucks. Uh, they, they even talk about the possibility of having to limit aviation in the province uh, because aviation, while it's relatively small, is, is extremely greenhouse gas intensive. Well, how would you service those remote communities? Like if you take, take a look at some of the native communities in the far north of Quebec, the only way to get there is by air. Balloons. Full of a hot air. Guess how you make that? Oh, brother. Okay, this, this kind of stuff, this is what makes me just, look, If I'm, I'm surprised I'm not bald. Um, anyway, all right, let's set that aside because we, we only have a limited amount of time, and I do want to get to this whole idea of Ontario uh, power. Now, one of the things that's on everybody's bill that very few people understand is this global adjustment. Let's start there. Oh, that is one of the most difficult uh, things to start with. But but let let's let me try. And believe I, and, me, and, if anybody can do it, you can. Well, thanks, Nick. I, I appreciate the vote of confidence. But uh, the, um, the it's, it's, when you when you talk about electricity in Ontario, um, the situation has been made so complex by the type of policies that the government of Ontario has chosen to follow that it, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's very difficult sometimes to know where to start, but but let, let's let me do it uh, as simply as I can. Um, the electricity generation in in Ontario uh, is roughly divided between that which is done by Ontario Power Generation, which is the um, the public utility that's that's uh, existed for a long time, and it's it's the successor to uh, the old uh, Ontario Hydro uh, right. generation portion. 
and uh, a number of other private uh, generators that have been established uh, over the course of the last 15 years, uh, many of which operate in terms of providing um, either nuclear or uh, um, wind or solar generation. For those newer generators, most of them operate on the basis of contracts that have been uh, signed by the independent electricity system operator. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're 20-year contracts with fixed terms. Um, the, in turn, those two sets of generators have two different streams of revenue. One stream of revenue comes from the wholesale price of electricity. Mm -hmm. They call it the, the, uh, it's a, the HOEP, or it's a kind of a, a, the market price. Right. Um, and that goes up and down depending on supply and demand conditions. The other part of their revenues comes from the global adjustment. And the global adjustment, in effect, is the, the costs that have been incurred by the independent electricity system operator as a result of all of the uh, generation investments that it's made over the past several years. So that is the main part of the generation costs that are paid by uh, residential consumers and industrial consumers and commercial consumers in the province. As time has gone on, the market price has gone, gone lower and lower, but the, the global adjustment has become higher and higher. Uh, and has no sh shows no signs of uh, now. Is that because the, the the wholesale price is dropping? It's because the the province has continued to add new generation capacity. Therein lies the kind of one of the central problems of Ontario electricity. Over the course of the last two years, uh, electricity demand in Ontario has gradually declined. It's partly because of improved efficiency, but it's also because of economic recession. That and how a lot of our heavy industry doesn't exist anymore. I, exactly. Uh, there's a change in the structure of the economy. Um, so that with, with demand reducing and the government continuing every year to add to generation capacity, we've ended up in a situation where we have an enormous surplus of generation capacity. So we've, we've got to pay for it, but there's fewer and fewer... Uh, uh, kilowatt hours to spread those costs uh, across. So what, what ends up happening is that the cost per kilowatt hour goes up. It gets worse. Why did I figure you were going to tell me that? Okay, um, because what has happened has been that the as the uh, supply has gotten increasingly more than the demand, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, independent electricity system operator, which manages the system often finds itself in a situation where it has to cut back on the generation because you can't store electricity economically, not, and, and so it has to be used when, when it's available. That's why electric cars don't work. It's why they're expensive, yeah. yeah. Um, and so what has happened is that in, what they have to do is they curtail the existing generation facilities. They pay them not to produce. This sounds like the old communist system of... of, uh, of uh, telling farmers not to farm because there's no market for their food, but they're going to pay them anyway. It's similar. It's similar in terms of its effect, at least. But even that's not enough. We've gotten to the point where uh, even though we're, like, we're curtailing um, natural gas plants, we used to curtail coal plants, we're, we're curtailing hydro plants, to a very limited extent we're able to curtail nuclear power plants, and we're curtailing... Wind and, wind and solar plants as well, because we've still got too much. But even that's not enough. So what we've had to do 
is we export the surplus electricity to Michigan and New York at a loss. The, and the, the loss uh, ha, has been over the last, over the period from 2006 to the present, it's over $7 billion in losses. Do you know how many miles of road you could pave with that kind of money? Or how, what kind of improvement you could make to the health care system? You know, there's all kinds of places you could put that money other than throwing it away. Like where I live out in, out in the, up the Upper Valley, the, once the highway goes from the 417 down to the 17, it pretty much stays that way all the way to the Manitoba border. And it's our transnational highway. And it is a death trap, especially from Arnprior all the way out to, let's say, uh, Petawawa. And the reason is because two-lane road and people are flying along at 65, 70 miles an hour. Mm. If they took even a fraction of that money and just doubled that road, the cost to our health care system, because now you don't have people being in nearly the same kind of numbers, ferried off in orange helicopters to hospitals. You know, there, there's the, the, the part of having a healthy infrastructure is you make things a little safer for everybody and drives all the costs down, not just not just one. And to go to your point about health care, um, there's all kinds of people out there who are having to choose between, you know, when it comes to their hydro, do I heat or do I eat? When health care, when people are crying for, uh, you know, MRIs, how long do they have to wait for those? People sit in hospitals here in the in the Montfort, in Montfort and in the different hospitals in Ottawa for sometimes days, mm-hmm. you know, because there's no money to pay the nurses. They'll, they'll keep the CEOs making a million bucks a year or half a million dollars a year, but the the people in the trenches are run off their feet because there's no money to hire them. They just fired a whole herd of nurses. So there's all kinds of places we could put that money if we just – okay, I could rant and rave about this all night, but – you and I are on the same page on that. So, with with the um, the economic, so that's the economic cost of these kinds of policies. How hard, and maybe this is outside your your bailiwick a little bit, but given what you know about the way the government works, how hard would it be to untangle ourselves from many of these policies that have led us to this very dark and dingy place? Well, it. it it's, the, the situation is is quite complex. Uh, I, I, let me try to gather my thoughts here because that's a very difficult question. Uh, let's start with the fact that every single aspect of the electrical energy system in Ontario is owned and operated by the government, everyone. Uh, whether you're talking about generation, transmission, distribution, or local distribution, they're all owned by government. So competitive market forces do not play very much of a role here. Um, and further, uh, uh, it, it used to be under the uh, former system uh, that was in place back before 2003 when we had uh, a, a, uh, Ontario Hydro right. uh, that uh, you had a very effective role being played by the Ontario Energy Board, which was a regulator that was supposed to review the investments of, of any of the large utilities, and in the consumer's interest, make sure that only those costs which were justified were passed through in the form of higher rates. Um, the, when the government passed the uh, Green Energy and Green Economy Act in 2009, it essentially took most of those powers away, the Ontario Energy Board. Uh, and uh, it, uh, so now the board uh, still does reviews, but it, it basically is being... 
uh, dictated to by ministerial. Uh, so it's turned into a rubber orders. stamp machine. It, in effect. Uh, now, so one of the things you would do is give the Ontario Energy Board back its power to look out for consumers' interests. Uh, the other thing that, that I think you'd have to do is to, um, frankly, repeal the Green Energy and Green Economy Act. Uh, eliminate the legislative authority that the, gov the government has to provide these feed-in tariffs for that, that pay above-market rates for new sources of generation. Uh, Bob, with that, I have to stop you there. Okay. That's been an hour. Thank and you. I, I did warn you it was going to go by fast, and it, it always it, does. It has. It's been a pleasure. And you know what? I certainly hope that we can get you back again because obviously there's a wealth of information here, and there's all kinds of stuff we didn't have time to get into. And I certainly hope to come back and join us again. I'd love to. All right. With that said, we're going to take a little break. I'm going to see Bob out. I'm going to hit the bathroom. And when I come back, we'll get into all kinds of other things. Because believe me, we've only scratched the surface. All right. So you guys listen to this. If I can find the right one, it is right. Come on. Where are you? I know you're in there somewhere. Uh, no, not that one. Not that one. No, where are you? Oh, that's it. No. Okay. Listen to this. We'll be right back. sued for anything I said there.
Okay, I need you guys to bear with me for just a minute. I'm going to try and fix the video here, so I'm going to stop this broadcast and restart it. So bear with me just a minute. Okay. There we are. I'm going to turn mics, that mic off. There we go. Okay. No, I'm not going to delete it. All right, now let me go back here. So bear with me just a second there, folks. Uh, live video. There we are. All right, I'm just going to throw the numbers up here. Okay, and let's go live. Okay. All right, we're back on live broadcast here. And we'll see if you guys get the video feed now. Uh, I know you could hear us. I could tell by the comments on Facebook. So I certainly hope that worked. Um, if not, well, we'll just soldier on. Uh, last month, last week, by the way, the reason why you couldn't hear the phone calls is I had a cord plugged into the wrong jack. Can you imagine me making a mistake like that? Yeah, I know. It's not all, all that hard to imagine. Okay, now, uh, some of the other things on the, on the menu this evening... Uh, plenty of things. There's. Let me start with what I think is one of the most heartbreaking stories I think I've ever read, and it starts here. Now, I, not that I doubted the veracity or the integrity of the person who sent this to me, but I hadn't seen this before, so I had to go and check it out myself, and I found it on at least half a dozen other websites. So, I the story is for all as far as I can tell, it's absolutely true. Now, it's about a, a baby. A little baby boy called Charlie Gard. He's ten, let me just jump into the article here. He's, he's a 10-month-old baby who suffers from a rare genetic disorder called my, mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. It's a horrendous condition that leads to organ malfunction, brain damage, and other symptoms. The hospital had been treating the boy. Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children in London made the determination that nothing more can be done for him and must be taken off life support. He should die with dignity, they said. The parents, Chris Gard and Connie Yates, disagreed. <sighs> okay, so in a nutshell, what happened was this went before the European Human Rights Council, and guess what? They came out with this. It is in his best interest to simply die. How is that ever in somebody's best interest. Imagine the heartbreak of the parents. Now, to finish this, to give you all the pertinent details here, the parents raised 1.6 million pounds to bring the child to North America, to the United States, for an experimental treatment uh, <clears throat> to try and save their son. It's a last-ditch effort, no doubt. But it's a 10-month-old little boy. And they'd already found a doctor who had agreed to do it. But the state overstepped its bounds and said it knows better than the parents do what's right for the child. And they said, no, you can't have your son back. He's gonna, he has the right to die in his own hospital bed because there's no hope. Well, I'm sorry, as long as there's breath, there's hope. This is such an outrageous story, so far beyond just, I just, I can't tell you how infuriating it is that this is a, this this kind of mentality. And you know what? This is the kind of thing that happens when you have things like the right to die. Remember that argument? You want to talk about a slippery slope? This is where it leads. 
Now, I'm not trying to be a fear monger, but what other conclusion can you come to? Where did this come from? Whatever happened to the idea that children are to be protected, that if there's anything you can do to save a life, you do it. Because humans are not animals. We're not just a higher form of animal who happened to evolve a little faster or along a different thread than others did. I reject that. So here we have this this poor family absolutely destroyed. You know, if you'd have told me this 10 years ago, I would not have believed you. And yet here we are, this family over in England is absolutely destroyed because the court with no interest in this story other than Okay, and then let me just continue uh, a little further. I have heard many people rationalize this demented decision by saying the doctors know best. That may be well may well be relevant in true situations where family members are trying to force doctors to administer treatments that they, the medical professionals, know will not work. Uh, but that is not what's happening here. The only thing these parents are trying to force is the doc is to get the doctors to relax their grip so the child can be taken to different doctors in a different country. The doctors may be the final authority on what kinds of medical measures they personally should take, but they are not the final authority over life itself. Couldn't agree more. This is an outrageous story, and it just tears me up to read it. Um, you know, this is how how can how could we say we have a culture that's based on individual liberty, freedom, and dignity, and and all the stuff that we take great pride in? We have stories like this. I just, I'm sorry, folks. That one just drives me crazy. I just can't understand it. Now, um, let's see. Oh yes, uh, let's let's. Oh, I know what I want to do. Okay, now remember, I was talking about uh, just to switch topics here. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was crying like a baby on the on TV because everything was that didn't happen. Uh, it was all his fault. Oh, I know what I want to do. Uh, here it is. This blows my mind. Uh, let's see. Okay, these are 27 promises that the liberals kept. Okay, now I'm going to read the. I'm going to read them out to you one at a time, and then you can tell me, by the way, whether you think these are promises they should have kept, whether these are just absolute utter nonsense. Okay, number one. They appointed a gender-balanced cabinet. Can I ask a question? What difference does gender make? Again, it goes back to merit. It always comes back to merit. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took a big step toward gender parity when he when historically under Canada's first ever gender when when he's his. Historically unveiled, I'm sorry, I missed a word. Canada's first ever gender balanced cabinet. Who cares? You know what? If you had, if all the best candidates were female, I wouldn't care, as long as they're all the best candidates for the job. If they're all male, I don't care, as long as they're the best. And that's the part that just. So that's not a that's not a promise to be proud of. That's just that is symbolism over substance. That sizzle over steak. The new Canada Child Benefit. The Canada Child Benefit gives more money to 9 out of 10 Canadian families and lifts almost 300,000 children out of poverty. Really? As somebody on Facebook said today, show me one. Show me one. 
it, this is the same kind of mentality. Remember a few years ago when Yasser Nakfi was the lapdog for Dalton McGinty running around saying, we've created 20,000 jobs. When it was investigated, found out the best they could come up with was 600, which left them, left them only 19,400 short of what they were talking about. So I'd love to see some stats on how many children this actually affected. And since when is this more effective than this, the income splitting and the tax credits that were taken away from parents that the Harper government put in while they were in power? Lowered taxes for the middle class. Oh, really? So this is what it says. The middle class tax cut helps strengthen the middle class, benefiting about 9 million Canadians each year. When middle class Canadians have more money in their pockets to save, invest, and grow the economy, we all benefit. Until the carbon tax comes along and takes all that money right back out again. Where do they people get the idea that this actually makes sense? This is nothing but talking points. This is nothing but brain-dead, fuzzy, feel-good liberalism. That's all this is. And I'm only on number four, which is next. They increase taxes for the wealthiest 1%. You know something? There's a clip out there. I think I posted on my Facebook page. I know I did. Where uh, Justin Trudeau was talking about how um, being fair isn't what it's all about. And then Prime Minister Stephen Harper stood up and he said, well, we know now what happens when people go off script. It was just hilarious. He absolutely crushed him in one sentence. But let me ask you something. What do you care about the top 1%? It's a dynamic number anyway, because people come and go out of that strata all the time. Would you say somebody who wins $14 million in a, in a um, lottery, let's say a Lotto 649, is in the top 1%? I would. But two years from now, there's a very good chance that all that money's gone and they're not in the top 1% anymore. You see, folks, the reason why it's attractive to go after the wealthiest 1% is because people don't understand it. They get caught up in class envy. And, yeah, he got more than I do. He should pay more. Wait a minute. He's already paying far more than you do. A lot of these people in the top 1% pay more in taxes than you'll learn in 5 or 10 years. Just how much do you think is fair? We should be thanking them for their contributions to the to the treasury, not not mad at them and want to pay even more. If you're making under thirty thousand dollars a year, you're not paying any taxes. But if you're making over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, you're make, you're paying tons of tax. Oh well, he can afford it. So what? What difference does it make whether somebody can afford it or not? Taxes aren't are not some kind of moralistic hammer we bring down on people. Taxes are to run the country with. That's it. And if somebody has more money than you do, you should applaud the guy and try and figure out how he got there so you can join him. You see, you always hear one of the catchphrases that's really starting to get under my craw is this whole idea about, oh, the middle class and all those working to join it. I don't want to join the middle class. I want to join the upper class. I've been in the middle class. It sucks. Who wants to have your wife out working or your husband out working? Both of you slaving like dogs to pay these taxes. Put your kids through school. You know, go through all the headaches that come with being in the middle class. Why not strive for a balanced life that includes a little more money than you need? 
so that you have some to give to things like, oh, I don't know, food banks, places like the Salvation Army, St. Vincent de Paul, you name the charity. You talk about, you want, you wonder why donations are down across the country for the United Way. Because people don't have it anymore. There is only so much taxes a country can pay. Paraphrasing Princess Leia uh, when she was talking to the evil admiral of the Death Star, or whatever the heck is the role that Christopher Plummer played, the harder you squeeze, the more of a slip through your fingers. Well, that's pretty much the way it goes. Taxes are not supposed to be a moralistic hammer that we beat people up with because they have a dollar more than we do. We should be emulating and applauding success, not running it down. And then they wonder why people hide their money offshore. Because most of them work bloody hard to get it. And they don't want the government throwing it down green toilets. All right. I need to take a little break. I'm going to play a couple commercials. We'll come right back with more after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches. But fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell Ron Council Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. Take the money and run. That's about the size of it. All right. Look, let me continue down this list. And I'll try to get through it a little more quickly because I could rant and rage about all of these. Uh, promise number five. We're only on promise five. Pan-Canadian plan for pricing carbon pollution. What the heck is a pan-Canadian anyway? Somebody who makes waffles? Who knows? Pricing carbon pollution is a crucial step towards reducing emissions, spring innovation, and creating well-paying jobs while protecting our air and water for our children and grandchildren. What a load of hooey. 
We just had Bob go over all of that. I want to thank him again for being my guest. He was a great guest, and I really am going to have him back in the not-too-distant future to go over some more of this stuff. But the basis of the the thing that drives me crazy about this thing is it's all predicated on a lie. Carbon is not pollution. Carbon dioxide gas is not pollution. It's plant food. And this nonsense is ongoing, never-ending drive to convince us otherwise is insulting to our intelligence. So I'm not going to rant about that one. Unmuzzling government scientists. By unmuzzling government scientists and allowing them to share their expertise, the Liberal government has begun to restore science's important role in national policy. Look, (laughs) all right, that's nonsense too. Reinstating the long-form census, number seven. Canada's long-form census makes it possible to include evidence-based decision-making and reliable data in national policy creation. With a 98.4 response rate, that can experience its best census ever. You know what? That, uh, what is it, 98.4, that little fraction above 98.4, some of that was me because I will not hand in the long-form census. I'm not doing it. There's information on that thing they ask they have no business asking. I'm not interested in telling them anything more than how many people live in my house so they can count noses. That's it. I want to know how many people live in the country, and that's all they need to know. They don't need to know what your religion is, what your sexual orientation is. They do not need to know what school you went to or a billion other questions that are on that long-form census. They just don't need to know, and I'm not interested in feeding that lion. Sorry. Revitalizing Federal Ocean Science Programs. The hiring of 135 new aquatic scientists and new research partnerships is an important part of protecting Canada's oceans, waterways, and fisheries. Yeah, I don't remember them talking too much about that during the election. Sorry, that's not a big deal. Expansion and protection of the Rouge National Park. Do you remember that? Any of this? Does anybody remember any of this during their campaign? Do you remember? Now, mind you, they made so many promises. It probably is in there somewhere. But I would hardly tout this as something that was, you know, oh, I don't know, on the, uh, on the, on the side of electoral reform. Sorry. It just So that one, you know, you're just doing that to take up space. Strengthening, strengthening the Canada Pension Plan. Achieving agreement in principle with providers and territories to strengthen the CP is a powerful step towards helping Canadians have a strong, secure, and stable retirement. Look, anybody with a brain in their head knows if you're counting on the Canada Pension Plan to carry you through retirement, you are going to be you are going to be mighty skinny really quick when you retire, because that is a joke. We contribute billions to it. It's been rated several times over its history, most no- most notably by the brilliant economist and accountant Paul Martin to balance the budget, and he rated a couple of other funds too. Um, So he's not really a brilliant accountant. He just is good at shifting numbers around. Anyway, so that's no nothing to uh, brag about. Returned OAS eligibility, which is old age security, by the way, to 65. Well, it never went to 67. That wasn't supposed to happen for a number of years yet, so they didn't return anything to 65. And it will put thousands of dollars back in the box. You know what? Okay, I've said my piece on that. Increased guaranteed income supplement payments for single seniors. Strengthening income... This is just more... Okay, that's number 12. 
New funding for women's shelters. Number 13, Budget 2016 provides significant new funding to ensure shelters and transition homes to have the resources to help women and their families, an important step toward the fight to, to end violence against women. You know something? This is the most, one of the most um, bigoted, I'm not even sure what word uh, I want to use to describe this. Racist, racist isn't the right policy, isn't the right word, um, but it's biased against men. Why? Look, I'm not for violence against women. I'm not for violence against anybody. But we don't have a shortage. Now, there's always people out there who are going to say, well, we can always use more. No kidding. There's not a publicly funded organization on the, in this country that wouldn't say no to an increase. But what about shelters for men? Because believe it or not, there are men who are abused by their spouses or partners. And out of fear and humiliation, have nowhere to go, end up on the streets, and some of them commit suicide. I'm not making this stuff up. Why is it not violence against everyone or domestic violence against either partner? What is this bias against men? Why do you, you know, again, is more of this fuzzy garbage? More money for infrastructure. An historic $120 billion investment for infrastructure over 10 years. This is a cash cow. Look, I don't. I haven't even read the details on this, and I can tell you this is going to be one massive swamp full of alligators. This is not going to work the way they want it to work. And how do I know that? Because Pierre Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, uh, the boy king has set this up and decided it's a good idea. Okay, we know how that goes. So anyway, it's not going to help Canadian communities it may help some preferred contractors, and I'm not against contractors, but let's face it, some of them um, get the lion's share of the work. And for an example of that, just look at the, the truck drivers here in Ottawa uh, who haul snow. Where do, where do they go first to get the drivers and the trucks to haul the snow away in the wintertime? They go over the river to Quebec. Just ask Ron Barr about that sometime. He'll tell you all about it and how his drivers get shut out and it's only when all the truck, Quebec trucks are used up and unavailable or already running that they'll even think about coming back into Ontario. He had a whole fight with, with them over that called Fairness is a Two-Way Street. Anyway, so launching the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We didn't need it. We already knew what happened to those girls. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not trying to say that these... These uh, situations were anyway laudable. When somebody gets murdered, it's a bad thing, especially for the victim. But we didn't need an abortive inquiry to find out what happened. We knew what happened. It was native-on-native native violence. So why spend the money on, on something we already knew the answer to? Because we have to reconcile with the natives. And this was one way we can placate them. Because, oh, we love you. Can't you see how much money we're spending on you? Don't you know? And ad nauseum, on and on and on it goes. Increased nutrition funding for the North. More nutrition funding for the North will provide better support and food security to Canadian families living in isolated communities. But you want to impose a carbon tax and cut greenhouse gas emissions that would take airplanes out of the air and... <clears throat> cut shipping that transports that stuff out there, up there. So how can you, on one hand, have a program that says, oh, we're going to make sure you guys are healthy because we're going to make sure you have healthy food to eat, but we're not going to let anybody actually take it to you. More nonsense. 
legalized medical assistance for dying. I just covered a story about that with that little boy. There was also a story in the news. Talk about a dark story. It was the one about the nurse that killed eight people and tried to kill six or seven more. Got 25 years. She was the Hamilton area, I think. It was in the news. Uh, she just got sentenced. That's a result. So you, So now, under that law, under this legalized medical assistance in dying, you have two situations, two scenarios. On one hand, you've got a nurse from the Combermere area who refused to sign a document saying that she would live by that law. She would rather stick to her principles and resign her position than actually help kill her patients. That's on one side. That's the good side, by the way. And on the other side, you've got a nurse deciding of her own accord who is going to live and who is going to die. And under this new law, who knows what the prosecution would have done? Who knows if they'd even laid charge? Well, they might have laid some kind of charge because maybe she had not done it with a proper pro- protocol. But would she have gotten 25 years with no chan- life with no chance of parole for 25 years? I don't think so. Reopen the Kiss- Kitsilano Coast Guard base. Okay, that one maybe makes some sense. I can't see that. I, I can't find a problem with that one. Strengthening First Nations education. The Liberal government is making significant investments for primary and secondary education on reserves, part of a $2.6 billion commitment to make sure that every First Nation nation's child receives a quality education. You mean the kind of reserves where the school burns down so they tear it down and build a hockey rink and then take a $90,000 Zamboni, spend $100,000 to, to cart it up north? You mean that kind of place? The best thing you can do for the reserve situation is drop off a load of bricks and mortar and say, build your school. You want it? There it is. It looks like a heap of bricks. Show me what you can do. And let them take ownership of it. Because as long as we keep handing them things on a platter with no expectation for you know, upkeep and all that stuff, if they have no pride in ownership, they're going to treat it like crap. And we don't have to look very far to see that being the truth. Now, I'm not trying to paint every... Reserve that way, that's not true. There are some very well-run reserves in this country, and the natives there take great pride in that, and I certainly applaud them for it. But we have far too many out there who look at these kind of situations as nothing but an ongoing gravy train. Isn't that right, Chief Spence? I'm referring to the former chief of uh, Attawapiskat who came and had that. Remember that hunger strike? Yeah, that was a sh- that was a real circus. Anyway, increased Canada student grants. Increasing Canada students' grants by 50% will help more than 350,000 students achieve a more prosperous future. (sighs) Okay, whatever. The Prime Minister's Youth Council. Maybe he should be. Anyway. That's number 22. The Prime Minister's Youth Council is an opportunity for young Canadians to provide their input into national policy. Okay. First of all, listen. Until you're 30... You don't even know there's anybody else on the planet. I'm not saying that there are not youth out there who may be able to make a valuable contribution. I don't want to paint with that broad a brush. But the vast majority of the youth today, they're too interested in the opposite sex. They're too interested in in getting through high school and, and college and university and starting their lives. They're not politically motivated. Of all the voter turnout, when you look at the break the numbers down, they're the ones who are the least likely to vote. 
And I can hear the, the opposite side saying, yeah, well, how are we supposed to get them engaged? Who said we had to? Who said we had to? If they don't want to vote, who are we to tell them they have to? Voting's not an absolute, like voting is a right, yes, but it's not an obligation. You are not obliged to vote. So what is this nonsense about a youth council? What what kind of, okay, so let's go to a 17-year-old and say, okay, uh, James there, um, what do you think of our uh, stance on Ukraine and uh, uh, uh with what Russia did in 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 the uh, in the Balkans and and uh, what do you think their position we should what kind of position should we have in foreign affairs about Syria? How should we deal with Donald Trump and the softwood lumber? Blink blink, crickets. That might give you an answer, but what what's it based on? You see, I don't want the prime minister drawing advice from people who have no world experience. If he's talking to a twenty-year-old about this, who would fit into this youth council thing. Ten years ago, the kid was ten. What does he know? He certainly doesn't know enough about world affairs to be, a, to be any, any... Don't you want to surround your, yourself with the best experts in the field when you're making, you know, real uh, substantive decisions? Like, it sounds good. It sounds Hey, listen, man, let's go talk to the youth. Well, the youth don't often have much to say about how to run a country. They don't even know how to run themselves. Revitalize Canada's international revitalize Canada's international profile. Oh, you think so? Well, you know what? Right now, the way all the world is, I don't give a flying fox fart, to quote a very famous broadcaster here in the Valley, what the world thinks of us. Because most of the world is in such a disgusting mess. Look at France. Look at Germany. Look at uh, Holland. Look at Sweden. Look at Norway. Look at, look at uh, Britain. Look at uh, Portugal, Spain. You take your pick. They're all a train wreck. So who cares what they think? Oh, Senate appointment reform. Yeah, that worked really well. We don't even need to talk about that. Giggle, giggle. Enhanced services for veterans. We still don't have a, a, a tanker for the Navy. J. Uh, Irving Shipyards is building ships that are going to cost four or five times more than they should. We don't have a replacement yet for the F-18. The Army needs new hardware. And you're talking about veterans? The best thing you can do for a vet right now, there's two things. Number one, get them the hardware they need. Stop pussyfooting around. If you have to beg, borrow, or steal a fleet of modern warships to replace the city class, go and do it. We never get this right in this country. And, of course, that's number 27. So there you go. That's the list of, um, oh, what a wonderful job the liberals are doing. And I just had to share that with you because it's driving me out of my mind to listen to or this kind of stuff. Only a liberal, only the government our present government will come out and say this is something to brag about. This is a list of disasters is what this really is. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, I know what I need to do. I get rid of that. All right. You listen to this one. We'll be back with more right after this.
Taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra. Eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. All right. Thanks for staying with me, folks. 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. And apparently on Facebook, there is no video feed. I don't know why. Uh, I did everything the same as I do every week. So we'll see what's going on there, and we'll get that rectified for the next show. All right. Now, back to, let's see. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. There's been a lot of talk lately about this word populism. And how many in the mainstream media are painting it as a bad thing. Oh, we're having seeing a rise in populism. What they're really saying is that we're seeing a rise in patriotism and people rejecting this idea of a global village. Something I've been saying for a very long time. Now, you know the Prime Minister's stance on this. He's a globalist. And the reason it's so easy to detect is because he used the phrase, we are a transnational country. Okay, when I first said it, I scratched my head thinking, what the heck does that mean? Well, what it means is he believes that Canada is a country in name only. It should not have borders. It not, should ha not have restrictions. It should not have qualifications for entry. Anybody should be able to come here and take advantage of the centuries of hard work that has gone into by millions of people who have put in place the greatest country this world has ever seen and simply plunder it. That's what a globalist believes. And he is by all means a globalist. He talks about Canada a lot. But the only thing he said that I will even mildly give him a nod for is the other day there was a new uh, record set for the longest kill uh, by a sniper in combat. When a Canadian sniper picked off an ISIS um, fighter, I hate that term, um, an ISIS fighter, because it, it's the word fighter I'm having a problem with. I would rather use another word, and I can't think of one. But he picked him off from 2.2 miles away. You realize that with the naked eye, you can't see somebody standing upright at six feet tall from two miles away? You can't even see them. 
And yet this guy was able to take him out from over two miles away. And he said, that should be celebrated. Hallelujah, no kidding. When a Canadian soldier stands up and protects his allies with a shot like that, you're damn right he should be recognized. He should get the Silver Star. He should get a medal for that. Now, the last time that happened under Paul, under Jean Chrétien, he would not, because we had the longest, uh, the longest combat killed by a sniper at that time too, was at 1.6 miles, I believe, and I think they were the regiment who was responsible for it was out of uh, was it the PPCLI? The Americans had to come and give them the Bronze Star in a secret ceremony because the Prime Minister didn't want to affect his peacekeeping, uh, you know, the world's view of Canada as peacekeepers, not peacemakers. So these guys went unrecognized for years. But that's about the only thing I can give him credit for. The rest of it is just utter nonsense. So uh, populism on the rise. No kidding. Because what to me, populism simply means patriotism. That people recognize that the largest organization that they can hold accountable, that they can be part of, is the nation state. It's where you have a group of people with common values rally around a common flag and have things in common that are unique to them. Core values, geography, history, culture, all those things are ingredients into what goes into making a country. So let me read to you just a little bit from this particular article. It's out of the sun. A recent poll commissioned by the Canadian press reveals the public, I need to put my glasses on, or this is all fuzzy, believes there's a northern populism movement growing in Canada. The elites predictably will react with fear and alarm to this story and inevitably try to convince regular Canadians into thinking it's a bad thing. It's what they do every time their agenda is threatened. Populism is a dirty word to those who lost their minds when Donald Trump got elected or who saw the sky falling after the Brexit vote in Britain. The reality is... Canadians are losing confidence in their institutions because increasingly those institutions fail to serve or reflect their priorities. Couldn't agree more. That is, I'll tell you who wrote that. Uh, uh, Post media. Oh, it's an editorial. So the editorial staff over at the Sun wrote that. And I, the final paragraph reads this way: the the elites aren't just out of step with common sense Canadians; they're out of touch with new immigrants as well. Every time the conversation of populism in Canada comes up, the usual suspects start wringing their hands. This threatens their privilege. Good. Let them dwell on it. Maybe it'll force them back to reality. Yeah, I hope you're right, but I'm not quite as convinced as you are that that's going to work. These people, they, they, I just, the idea that being proud of your country is somehow a bad thing just gets under my craw because as far as I'm concerned, um, there is no excuse. If you live here, if you work here, if you pay taxes here, and you think this country is worthy of your best efforts, there's nothing wrong with being proud of that. It's a laudable virtue, not a damnable vice. And these guys just go on and on as if it was somehow a bad thing. Okay. Now, remember I was telling you about um, uh, our our little boy prime minister was crying because electoral reform, uh, the budget deficit, and that kind of stuff, it didn't go my way because those mean old opposition parties. Okay, uh, this is out of CTV News, actually. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ended the second parliamentary sitting with a few parting shots at the Conservatives and the NDP, blaming the opposition for stalling bills in the Senate, the federal deficit, and his broken promises to reform the electoral system. Trudeau held a press conference Tuesday to to mark Parliament rising for the summer, taking questions on issues ranging from strong job numbers to whether he regrets naming independent senators. Asked whether he still plans to get rid of the deficit by the 2019-2020 fiscal year, Trudeau didn't answer directly, instead speaking more broadly about the government's intention to strengthen the economy. And then he goes on a whole bunch of baffle gab about how the... the um, oh, okay. Here's the, here's the relevant paragraph. We just went from a floor where a budget was balanced because supposedly the Conservatives had balanced the budget to what was the reality of our budget being at about $18 billion in deficit at the end of the first year. Uh, so we've been consistent in our plan and our approach. That's a flat-out lie. That's a flat-out lie. The parliamentary budget officer, the federal watchdog, charged with examining government finances downgraded the country's fiscal outlook just after the Liberals won the 2015 election. Trudeau kicked off the press conference with an opening statement in which he thanked journalists for their work, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't just on the federal deficit Trudeau pointed blame at the Conservatives, who held power for 10 years before. Okay, who cares? Asked whether he regretted kicking Liberal senators out of his caucus and appointing only independent senators, Trudeau said the Senate is taking steps toward the independence envisioned by Canada's founders 150 years ago. But he singled out the Senate's Conservatives, Conservative caucus as a problem. This approach demonstrates less partisanship, more independence of thought. The fact that we are stymied by a bit, by a bit, stymied a bit by a block of partisan conservatives who vote against the government every chance they get simply means there's more work to do to create a more independent and thoughtfully reflective Senate. So what he's saying is, these guys don't agree with me, so they gotta go. I gotta find a way to get my cronies in there because we can't have conservatives causing me problems. And you realize that all of this is nonsense. The reason I say it's nonsense is because he's got a majority. What's his excuse? If you want to pass a budget, pass a budget. The government can't do it. The opposition can't do diddly. That's the whole point of having a majority. And the fact the Senate almost to a man revolted against some parts of his budget made me stand up and cheer. Anyway. All right, time to take another break. When we come back, we'll have the final segment right after this. So stick around. We've got more to come on the Naked Night Show. CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile.
All right. Final segment of the show. Let's let's do this. Let's look at let's end the show on a high note because the next time we get together, we will already have passed the July first long weekend. And as much as I've been railing and ranting about things that are wrong, there's a lot of great things about this country. And I want to share with you, there's a list in the Globe and Mail uh, today, Great Canadian Inventions, uh, Innovations, I'm sorry, Inventions, Innovations, yeah, same thing. Anyway, some of this stuff caught me completely off guard. I did not know, which isn't surprising. Uh, my knowledge of all things Canadian is hardly encyclopedic. However, I do take pride in knowing a little bit about my country. Anyway, um, Here's a, a, some names and items I'll bet you didn't know, at least the first one here. Did you know the alkaline battery is Canadian? I didn't know that either. Invented by a guy called Louis Uri back in 1957. And it's a diagram showing you what the inside of an alkaline battery looks like, which is really kind of cool. Uh, let's see. Uh, do, do, do. Oh, yes. Uh, what was that? Uh, snowboarding. Yeah, that's a Canadian invention, too, invented by J.P. Auclair and J.F. Cosson and Vincent Dorian. Uh, they were uh, Quebecers um, uh, who came up with the idea uh, called a switch curl. Uh, oh, no, that was the board they created. They, in other words, they invented the um, uh, ski, uh, ski boarding. Uh, Sam Stanford Fleming, traveling around the world is a lot easier today thanks to Stanford Fleming, the Scottish-born engineer and avid traveler and railway engineer, helped institute a global 24-hour clock after a train schedule mishap. But Fleming's proposal for 24 time zones, each representing 15 degrees of longitude and an hour of solar time, uh, would become his lasting legacy. So if you want to know where the 24-hour clock came from and time zones, you can thank Stanford Fleming. Uh, it doesn't say the year. Uh, just looking for the year that was invented. I think the, the only date given in here is 1876, which is possible. Okay. The inventor of canola, canola the plant, and canola seeds and canola oil was a guy called Richard K. Downey. That's Canadian, too. And canola is used in all kinds of places. James Gosling, uh, let's see, created the language, computer language Java which is one of the most widely used uh, computer languages in the world. Most Canadians have never heard of James Gosling, but the Alberta-born <clears throat> principal creator of Java, one of the most widely used and longest-lived programming language in modern computing, is a hero in Silicon Valley. In places like India and China, it can be difficult for him to get around without being mobbed by people excited to meet him. Okay, we all know about the, the creators of Trivial Pursuit, Cirque du Soleil, and Five Ping Bowling. Uh, that's all Canadian. Uh, let's see, some of the different uh, products that fit into this category. Uh, from Northern Telecom, telecom uh, let's see, the Batteryless Radio, the Canadian Marconi Company, and Advancements in Radar. Okay. Wonder Bra and Jock Straps are Canadian. Oh, well, well that's interesting. Um, that was invented by, it doesn't give the name. I'm just seeing if it gives a date the first time they were... Uh, uh, it was doesn't mention a date. All right. Did you know that the Bloody Caesar, the drink, is Canadian? Invented by an Italian immigrant out of Calgary, I think, is where he comes from. Uh, doo -doo. Yeah, in Calgary. So that's where that comes from. Uh, trying to find his name. Let's see. Walter Chell. 
immigrated from Canada to Canada from Italy, and when he was in Calgary, uh, looks like he was a bar owner, invented the Bloody Caesar, or the blood, not the Bloody Mary, the Caesar. Uh, the maple syrup can. Well, gee, imagine that. We invented the maple syrup can. The pacemaker. How many lives has this thing saved? And you should see the picture of the first one. It's the size of, well, I'd say a bread box, but nobody really knows how big a bread box is anymore. So it's the size of a small microwave oven. Dr. Wilfred Bigelow uh, invented that, and he invented it back in 1950. Now, like I said, there's it's got two dials and a switch in the middle. Two little uh, lever switches down below and a, a set of wires coming out. Now, today they're so small you can fit them inside the chest cavity. But that thing, you couldn't fit that into an elephant. But <laughs> there it is. That's the, the, you know, the, the thing about inventions is what they start out with is never where they end up. And, of course, we all know about the snowmobile. Uh, let's see. The Canadarm is also very famous. Everybody knows that. But the, the thing about the Canadarm I found most fascinating about was this whole idea that the way it grips objects in space is totally unique. It has something, I'm looking at a diagram of it, and the end of it is round, and inside there's three wires. And then as it approaches an object, the wires are contracted around the end of it and grip it so that it can be manipulated. And then when it's done, it just the wires retract or, or slack off, and the object's allowed to float free. So it's really a very interesting uh, solution to a very difficult problem. Um, let's see. Yeah, the Canada arm. So anyway, those are some of the things about Canada that um, I wonder if you knew about, especially the alkaline battery. That one really, I had no idea that one was Canadian. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. I want to tell you, uh, just in the last two minutes or so that we have, like I was saying before, with all the warts and wrinkles that Canada has, there is really no better place to live than here in this country. Uh, I know that there's, um, you know, um, a lot of other, uh, we have a lot of problems. There's no doubt of that. Um, but one of the things that Canadians do best is they overcome. They find ways to get around things. They, they work through things. It's our history. Uh, we don't run away from a challenge. We accept it, embrace it, and run with it. And I see this as no different. There are tough times ahead. There's dark clouds on the horizon, but that's always been the case. I mean, you think back, if you can find a spot in Canadian history where there wasn't trouble on the horizon, let me know because I don't know of any. All the way back to 1759 where Canadian history starts with the Battle of Lanes of Abraham. Uh, oh, geez, that's a question I just thought of. I was going to ask you guys and I forgot. If there was a Canadian Mount Rushmore, who would you put on it? Tell you what, I'll ask you that question Post your answer on Facebook. I think somebody asked that question earlier, but I want to ask the broader audience. And if you can tell me um, who you would put, the first person I would put on it is Major General James Wolfe. No question about it, because without his victory on the Plains of Abraham, we do not become British. And we do not become Canada as we know it today. He's the father of the country. So, And then, of course, you'd have MacDonald and Laurier and and some of the other... Uh, hugely influential. But if you had to pick four Canadians, my first choice would be Major General Lewis McKenzie, second choice John A. MacDonald, uh, C.D. Howe would be number three, and Wilfrid Laurier. Those would be my four, the, the four that I can think of that would uh, go on a Canadian Mount Rushmore if there was one. So post your answers on Facebook. 
All right, that wraps it up for me tonight, folks. I have thoroughly enjoyed this, this um, technical glitches and all. I want to thank Bob again for being my guest. I will have him back if you missed that interview. It's on. It should be already posted on my Facebook page. I um, uh, posted that interview, so by all means, check that out. Um, I'm sure you'll learn a lot. I know I did, and it was a lot of fun to, to sit and chat with Bob because he makes such great contributions online on my Facebook page. And I know a lot of people really enjoy what he has to say. It's a breath of fresh air. So check that out. In the meantime, that wraps it up for me tonight, and I'll see you all again next week. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Of all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in. Good company And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me Hello. And all I've done For want of wit To So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently. And softly call Good night and joy be to you all Of all the comrades that it I had They're sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me one more day to stay since it fell into my lot that I should rise and you should not, I'll gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Fill to me the parting glass and drink a
Let's see.